Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm with a very old friend of mine whom I've actually known for almost 25 years but was out of touch with for about 20 of those 25 years and that's Gail Phillips. Gail, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Toby. It's delightful to be uh, joining you in this podcast. Yeah, so tell me about what you're up to now. You've just said you're retired but that's retired in order to enter seven gates of hell. Well, that's, that's <laughs> right. I don't know how many there are. But some well, the delightful thing about being an academic is that you can retire, but it really means that what you do is divest yourself, obviously, of a salary, but also <laughs> of uh, the need to kind of engage in all the kind of distracting admin duties that academics more and more have to engage in. We're in a cycle of constant reform and reformation as far as universities are concerned and I felt that I wanted the freedom to be able really to have the kind of time to think that you always used to think that academics had but that they actually are very short of and I also felt that I wanted to break the bounds of my discipline area which is journalism in order to reacquaint myself with some of the things that I really enjoyed looking into in the past languages that I once knew how to speak but have dropped out of practice with and uh, um, areas of, of interest of mine like medieval Spanish literature which is where I started where you know for many years I just haven't sort of looked into that kind of thing at all right. so it's really and it's also that I really didn't have a lot of time for as a fully fledged academic so I'm enjoying that very much. Yeah well, I just got a nasty message which said disc is too slow to record oh. but now it's recording again and I hope that's going to be all right. I don't know what the problem was. Uh, so, in what you just said, what you're talking about is partly to do with Australian universities. We're in an Australian university, we're in Perth. Partly to do with your own academic background, which is one where you've gone from, you know, Epoca de Oro, or before the Epoca de Oro, to journalism. It's an amazing trajectory, I think because of the profoundly anti-academic nature of much of journalism and the profoundly anti-journalistic attitude of much of academia. So you embody these contradictions, but have, of course, transcended them. Well, <laughs> oh, one hopes. <laughs> but I'd love, I'd love to go back, back, back in our past to when you were a radio producer uh, here in Perth with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And I'd like to ask you how you became a radio producer and where and when and so on, because your accent clue people in, the fact that you're not exactly a native of Western Australia, no. but you're actually somebody who's travelled a lot around the world. So where did radio come in? Well, the funny thing is that radio came in because I've always been passionately interested in radio, and I learned about radio by being a listener to radio. As do we all. That's the best learning, isn't it? About you radio? learn all the nuances just by listening. And you learn about how information is transmitted from broadcaster to listener by being a listener. And I loved radio, and I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And radio journalism just seemed to be what I wanted mm -hmm. to do. It was the perfect match. And um, I had been in the UK where I did my tertiary education, where my family comes from, despite my accent, where I did tertiary education. Very difficult to get into the media. Uh, in the UK. But when I came to Australia within a week, I got a job as a freelance journal. And then <laughs> I decided to uh, do a grad dip in journalism at 
Curtin University. Cause so they a have graduate a, diploma. Because I thought that would be a quick and easy way of me making contacts in Australia, mm. media contacts in Australia, and they had a radio station. Mm. Well, what happened was that within a month of starting the course, I was employed by the radio station as a producer. I then became its news director, and then I had a stroke of luck because a very well-known radio presenter was temporarily between gigs, was picked up by this tiny little community radio station to do a program. I was given to him as his producer, and when he then got another high-profile gig in commercial radio, I went with him. And that got me into mm. mainstream radio. But That's, I knew that the ABC was going to be my natural home. Mm. So when I had the chance to go there, I grabbed it. So which commercial station was this? It was 6PR. Right. Which is kind of notorious in, Absolutely. here in Perth. Why is it notorious? Because it's uh, basically the local home of the shock jocks, the, uh, the commercial radio full frontal presenters, uh, all male. Uh, around the country who really garner listeners for their stations by being out, as outrageous as possible and really trying to actively stimulate uh, quite vigorous uh, debate. And the particular presenter that I worked with was Howard Sattler, who is actually a very fine journalist. And uh, we worked together quite harmoniously, even though we came from totally different sort of spectrums, I suppose, when you think about what my ideal of sort of media was compared to his because he was he was a commercial animal from go to woe but we nevertheless coincided on our ethics although his subsequent career pathway made me realize i could never have worked with him the way he was required to be later in his career but at that time uh, i learned an awful lot from him about street smart radio which when i went to the abc meant that i was able to import a lot of much more sophisticated production strategies than the ABC See, at that time had. This is interesting because for US listeners, many people in Perth, if they listened to Rush Limbaugh, would, and, and if they were on the left, would regard Howard Sattler as like Rush Limbaugh because of what appeared to be his anti-immigrant, anti-Aboriginal, anti-feminist attitudes. But what you're saying is that actually there's something much more subtle, much more profound and much more interesting about him? Well, there certainly was at the time when I was working with him. When we, you know, actually did... Uh, I had no problems dealing with any of the stuff that we dealt with. I mean, the agendas that I was able to put forward as his producer um, were taken up as stories. I wasn't aware of any of that rabid rabidness. Mm. He did tend to be quite rabid in his Sunday Times, which is a Murdoch publication, newspaper column. And I would say, how can you, you know, expect to have one kind of persona in your radio program and a totally different, mm. far more outraged persona in your Sunday column? But the pressure on him to garner ratings, the pressure on all these commercial talkback hosts to garner ratings meant that they have over the years become more and more rabid, more and more Rush Limbaugh-like mm. in their approach and far more divisive uh, in the way in which they kind of manipulate public opinion. What was it about his... If, if this can be revealed as a secret, as it were, his journalistic methods that was so innovative and influenced you and what you learned from? Well, he was basically a, a, a print journalist of long standing, 
And just as you've got, uh, you know, Neil Mitchell in Melbourne, for example, came mm. from that. Uh, he's he basically is the Howard Sattler equivalent. Is of that three A W? Three A W. Well, these are all AM stations. They're all AM talkback right. stations. Yes. Yeah. So their aim is basically to generate audiences by being right. controversial. Um, Howard came from a, a very similar background to Neil Mitchell in terms of being a, 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 a senior journalist of long standing. Um, very credible and creditable journalist. Uh, he'd done both uh, print and uh, and uh, television, mm -hmm. uh, and he was a very serious-minded journalist. Um, you know, it's very sad the way the commercial. And one of the reasons I had to leave commercial radio was that I was aware that there were more and more pressures on us to deliver a certain kind of content um, that was less to do with true and accurate reporting mm -hmm. and more to do with sensationalization. And so some of his attitudes that, and values that I would associate with him might be about his politics. He may actually believe those things, but they were under check because of his journalistic ethos. I, I think so. I mean, I don't know that you can really equate um, Howard's politics with uh, and genuine beliefs with what he actually said on air. He was a persona. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he prided himself on... Uh, you know, being aloof, if you like, from overt political allegiances and that sort of thing. What he did was a tactical uh, um, strategy, if you like, mm. to garner audiences. And it's the cynicism of that that's imposed on people working in commercial radio right. that meant that I knew our paths were going to eventually have to diverge, uh, mine and commercial radios. I, it just wasn't my natural home. And for people outside Australia, the way this works, I think, still, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Gail, is that rather than having nationally syndicated satellite-based forms of radio that drop into local stations, which is what you have in the United States uh, increasingly, and the loss of local radio hosts, who even may rate higher than people like Limbaugh, but are kicked out because they can't bring in national advertising. So they get lower audiences but higher ad revenue. That's the model. You can have GM advertising in your local radio market if you have a national feed. You can't if you have a local feed that's actually more popular and relevant. Rather than that, it's more city-based in Australia, isn't it, still? Well, it is, in but commercial radio. studies I've done of, of, of commercial radio show just how far they, they follow a network approach. I mean, there's uh -huh. been a lot of... They've established networks, and the way in which they operate is not dissimilar from the ABC in terms of the balancing of local and, and national. And again, this is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, yes. which has very local feeds as well as, as national. As well as national. Okay. But it means that they can basically do global deals that they can then, you know, well, national deals, if you like, with high-profile advertisers that they can then place in their differently branded um, sort of morning slots or afternoon slots that are built around people with who are high-profile and, and uh, within their individual communities. Yeah, yeah, so it's a mixture. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're working at 6PR, this uh, commercial AM station, with this very famous journalist, uh, presenter. And then you take off for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is a public broadcaster. When does that happen to you? Late 80s, are we talking about? Uh, I, I joined the ABC in 1986. 1986, okay. And are you again doing talk radio as you had with Howard Sack, or is it different? Well, I was taking over the uh, morning talks program, mm -hmm. which was uh, in need of a revamp, basically, and they wanted to have uh, a new 
presenter and a new style and they wanted it to be more sort of uh, current affairs and that mm. kind of thing. So mm. I was basically able to translate the kind of format that I was uh, working in in commercial radio into an ABC format. It meant that I was doing talkback, yes, but in a far more cerebral way, the kind mm. of audiences that were listening were people who you know, were there were lots of professionals, so that if you mm. had a talk back on medicine, you'd get doctors and nurses and those kinds of people coming in. Yeah. yeah. So the listeners were quite different from those who were listening to talk back. What they wanted from talk back was um, much more of a, a kind of uh, well-balanced argument yeah. and, and airing of ideas. It meant that in the context of... Uh, of what I was doing in the ABC, I really felt that I was able to deal far more profoundly, insofar as radio can deal profoundly with anything given the formats, um, with issues that uh, we had judged were um, relevant and yeah. important for the listening. And by morning, is that sort of 9 till 12 or something like that? After yes, the that's breakfast right. Show. After the breakfast show. Yeah. It started at 8.30, went through till midday. Right, right, right. And... Your audience profile is urban middle class professionals aged 25 to 60. Well, they wish they were 25, but they tend to be sort of more 35. You know, once you begin right. having a mortgage and a family, you, you listen to talk radio. <laughs> a mortgage and a child. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's interesting. Okay, okay. And you did that morning slot from 86 to... To the late 80s, uh, then they wanted to introduce a current affairs type drive program and I was put in charge of that. So drive time, so afternoons? Afternoons from um, 4 till 6. 4 till 6. And so you're at the ABC in total from 86 to when? Well, till I joined Murdoch, which uh, Murdoch University, which was in um, 97. 97, so a decade. Mm. Now over that time, uh, there are some interesting transformations that public broadcasting has to deal with and radio has to deal with that are technological in part, political, economic, policy-driven, all sorts of things, aren't there? What are some of the big shifts that you saw during that time? Well, uh, I had a, a fine time at the ABC. It was at the time, um, a lot of it was when David Hill was, was in, and even though the ABC was suffering its usual slings and arrows in terms of stresses with the government and stuff like that, uh, over funding. Um, you were given a brief and you could basically run with it. And during that period, I went from being a, a program producer to basically the uh, program director of the station. And then I went uh, to Radio National to set up their breakfast current affairs program. So I was, I was able to initiate lots of these current affairs type formats some in the context of local radio, one in the context of the national um, uh, service, the, the uh, networked. Did radio. you go to Sydney? To I went right. to Sydney to and, do that. Right. Can, can you, sorry to interrupt, but catching up on that, can you explain to people what Radio National is as opposed to the station you were working for for the yes. ABC? That was local? The station that I was working for, the local station, was then called 6WF. It's 720 ABC Perth now. And it's one of a a chain of local radio stations that largely produce uh, community-relevant local content and are broadcast out of those particular locales. 
but the ABC also has a nationally networked specialist radio station, which is Radio National. Which is also to all talk. Which is all talk. Yeah. It's not uh, necessarily uh, the same kind of live uh, talkbacky type format yeah. because it, it runs across different time zones, and not, uh, you know, yeah. and so the the programs tend to be broadcast at the equivalent times all around. Yeah. But they're yeah. uh, they're basically largely centrally produced, more and more centrally produced in Sydney because the um, budget cuts have meant that it's been more difficult to have mm. locally based teams inputting from their various the different states. Uh, but basically it's a, a, a single service specialist programs, um, less of a flow program, more of a kind of BBC Radio 4 type. Radio format. 4 would be the model. Yes. I guess it's a bit like NPR in the United States. That's right, it is. Very similar. Well. So what, what was it like going from 6WF as it then was, namely a public broadcaster that dedicated to serving Perth and its environs here in Western Australia, to doing a very high profile program, breakfast traditionally in British Australian radio in particular, where you have your top gun, uh, and doing it nationally, and of course in a new city. Yes, well it was I guess one of my biggest professional challenges, mm. uh, moving and then starting this this format from scratch, I actually went to the UK to look at how the Today program was put together because this the idea was that we would have something similar. But another of course, girl, another girl friendly place. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> program. But of course, we didn't have so a boy, budget. The Today program, I should say, for those people outside Britain, is uh, required listening really for every middle class person. It's on at breakfast. And it's a boys' club where they shout at politicians, where instead of the populist, shouty person being the politician, as you would get more in the United States, here the politicians are basically degraded by a bunch of piss-contesting men. And it's notorious because it's been historically almost all blokes, uh, and the people who are brought in as expert commentators are almost all blokes, and of course everybody's white. So they're trying to reform, reform that, but... Good luck to them. <laughs> you've got the Humphreys thing to deal with. Anyway, so you went over there to look at that. To look at what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and how they resourced it, resourced it and stuff like that. And uh, because, I mean, uh, for one thing, they have these rotating presenters. So yeah. you've basically yeah. got the format that, yeah. that's constant. Which but is they very have, smart. It is. Here, we had to do it all ourselves. Yeah. And so you were going to be doing, you know, five days a week up yep. at 4.30 to yep. get a current affairs program together. Um, so I had to sort of get us correspondence into different states so we could have feeds in, and um, we had to sort out, you know, uh, what the agenda was going to be every day. It was working from 4.30 in the morning, 4 o'clock when I woke up, till about 9.30 at night. Um so that you could work with the night producers to make sure certain things were set up for the following day. It was grueling, but it was fantastic. It must have been exciting. It was just marvellous, because you really were aware that the programme was an, an agenda setter. And the fact is that it's got a tiny audience. Always has done, always will do. Rarely, I mean, I don't think it's ever hit two, for example. It may on rare occasions have hit 2% of the Australian population, but you knew that everybody in Canberra would be listening. So it was a small but... Highly influential. It's opinion leaders, it's elites, that's it's intellectuals, right. That's right. it's policy mandarins, it's corporate leaders. And you were given 
you were given the opportunity to basically uh, give them what they needed as a morning yeah. fix in the morning. Yeah. So uh, it was really exciting to be involved in that. Wow. Wow. And how long were you doing that? Well, I did it for a year. Right. Then I had a family crisis, which meant that I had to come back to Perth. Oh, wow. And that's when Murdoch yeah. asked me whether I'd come here to take oh, okay. over the media. Um, I mean, no, no, that they, they did offer, I did go for a job at Murdoch, but actually what happened was I came back to Perth and I was given the job of uh, station manager for my old station, 720. So once again, the whole idea was that there would be new formats, it was reinventing itself, so I came in with a big creative challenge and it was great. I had, you know, was given, uh, there was a lot of confidence put in me as, as local manager mm. at that point. Um, by the time I left three years later, and one of the reasons I did leave three years later was the ABC went through one of its crises where power is immediately withdrawn to the center. There's a total lack of confidence in what's happening uh, in the, the surrounding kind mm. of state capitals because everything's very sensitive and they, they become super cautious. Yeah. And uh, all the autonomy that I had that made it such an exciting uh, challenge for me kind of disappeared. So I decided at that point that uh, I would uh, try academia. One of the things about the ABC is that it has this awful acronym BAF, the BAF states. B for Brisbane, A for Adelaide, P for Perth, H for Hobart. And they're the problem for the ABC, which basically wants life to be about Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra but there are these pesky, quite large cities with populations and employees that have to be dealt with. Well, you know, it was very interesting actually working out of Sydney, and I think every journalist has to do it. Because even though I'd been involved in current affairs radio ever since I'd started, and I'd been an avid consumer of just about every medium, news medium that there was, it was only when I was living in Sydney that the news agenda actually made sense to me. I mean, I absorbed it from wherever I happened to be, but it was only there that you realized how much it was a product of the sort of Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra kind of gossip network. Mm -hmm. And the agendas that emerged came from that. It emerged quite organically and naturally and seemed obvious once you were actually in them. Yes. So what were the sorts of sources that you'd be using at 4.30 in the morning or 9.30 at night to decide what was going to go to where? Well, we were just on the phones all the time and uh, monitoring what was going on, which was why it was only sort of after the evening news and current affairs programs where commentary had basically bedded down certain issues that you were able to sort of think forward and think, well, right, where do we pick up on this the next day? In the US, it's still the case that the New York Times is absolutely crucial in setting agendas, whether you're in Wichita or Washington, and that can be Washington State or yes. DC. It's incredible. Well, the broadsheets were very important to us as sources uh, of you know news and an idea of what was going on where. But also the Daily Telegraph, which is a you know broadsheet, but everybody reads it. And, uh, not a broadsheet, a tabloid, very popular, and you'd sort of you know dip into that in order to see oh, what, what how they were running with things. And what about when you were accused, not you personally perhaps, but the ABC in general, of appealing to middle class elites and this, why should this happen when you've got public funding and shouldn't you be more populist and shouldn't you broaden 
yourselves, and then the minute you do that, you're accused of stealing the commercial radio's audience. Well, it's just an ongoing problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. The ABC is trying to fulfill a very complex brief, which almost by definition requires that it atomize its services mm. Mm. to serve particular audiences who either who aren't being served by the commercial mm. media or are being served in a way that, you know, uh, leaves room for different approaches to how their needs are, are catered for. Mm. So it, it's a no-win situation for the ABC. If you get audiences, then you're stealing from the commercials. If you don't get audiences, you shouldn't be having public money to fund you. That's right. And this dilemma, which applies to the BBC as well, is actually unresolvable, as you say. It is the thing that people need to think about when they talk about public broadcasting. And basically, that contradiction, that irresolvable contradiction, is the problematic of public broadcasting. Everything else people write about boils down to that. Well, it's true. And the thing that worries me is that the kinds of values that you've got embedded within public broadcasting, which is about informing and entertaining and being a repository for the culture of the nation, are these sort of sort of vague va mm. values and mm. vague ideas of worth are being very much discounted in the modern mm. climate, mm. both political mm. and media climate. Um, it's all about atomizing of audiences, I suppose, but in a mega global kind of sense. Um, and the whole idea of having the time and the resources to invest in something that's slightly more cerebral, that gives mm. you the space to think. It's not very popular, mm. certainly mm. not with the bean counters, mm. be they government or be they, you know, the investors in commercial media. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, with the decline and decay of campus radio in the US because of the internet, there's almost nowhere in the United States where you get very interesting, innovative music programming, for example let alone talk. Uh, NPR, I think, has a problem here in that it's very highly produced and impressively produced, but there isn't the time and space for the ideas to be expressed in the way that I think Radio 4 does allow, and even 5 Live, or Radio Bloke, as it is called in Britain, allows. Well, actually, when I'm in Britain, I've taken to listening to 5 Live more than to Radio 4. It's not bad, is it? No, it isn't. I mean, they yeah. do some very interesting... Uh, they've got some very interesting uh, presenters, although mm. they're getting rid of two of the most interesting ones. I mean, they're... they're well, they're becoming kicking out the girls. Yes, that's they're right. They're kicking out the girls. Out the girls. Yeah. I think that's yeah. appalling. Yeah. They're yeah. really good. Victoria yeah. Darvish is wonderful. Yeah, she is. Very good podcast if people ever want to go back and listen to her work. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But it's not bad. I used to listen when I lived in L.A. to it live, and overnight... They have lots of interesting science and technology people, actually, they that do. you can listen to during the day mm. in California. So whereas I found Radio 4, like the ABC here, has rather uncomfortably tried to kind of go down market. Mm. I mean, I, just mm. not the same. I've really noticed mm. a diminution in quality. I mm. go back once or twice a year to the UK, and mm. I've mm. noticed over the years that it's, it's tended to... to lose confidence a bit in, mm -hmm. in what it does. Um, so, uh, and I've found that the World Service also has very much reduced the breadth of offering that it, it has. I mean, I listen to the World Service here, and you just don't find the variety, and you don't find the depth, and you find a... Repetition. Yes. Huge repetition. It's basically followed the network logic. 
And of course, it's been resumed into the main body of the BBC and the main body of journalism mm. to rationalise resources mm. because the Foreign Office of Britain, which used to fund it, no longer does. So. Yes, well, it's the same as what's been happening with international broadcasting here with Is Australian it? television now no more. That, now, um, what was that? Australian television was the um, international service that the ABC ran. It was very controversially given the uh, gig by the Gillard government, which scrapped a tendering process that involved Sky um, and it arbitrarily, you know, over the head of the tendering process, gave it to the ABC. Well, this obviously wasn't popular with commercial interests. And the Abbott government basically got rid of the service. And as a result, the staff, uh, including Radio Australian staff, which is the radio equivalent of the service. I mean, Radio Australia is still there, but many of its staff who were serving across both media um, have been made redundant. And Radio Australia is like the word service. The Gillard yes. government refers to Julia Gillard, social democratic politician originally from Wales, but grew up mm. in Australia. And the Abbott government refers to the current federal government in Australia. Tony Abbott is the prime minister. He's a relation with Mindless Twerp, who represents major manufacturing and mining extraction interests in Australia and some pastoral. Whereas yes, he Gillard... heads the Liberal National Government, Toby. Oh, sorry. And Julia Gillard was head of the Labour government. <laughs> uh, so, okay, you come back to academia, but let's, again, messing about the chronology bit, let's go back, back, back. So, you grew up where? Well, my father was with the UN. Right. So I grew up, I had my childhood in New York, right. then we were sent to Mexico, so I spent right. my teenage years there. But my parents actually came from the UK, so mm. when I was at the age of going to university, I took advantage of the opportunity to go to the UK so I could experience living there. So I did my tertiary education uh, in the UK. And you did undergrad in, say, what, Spanish and Italian, Romance and Spanish, Spanish and French. Spanish and French. And then right. a PhD in medieval Spanish. Medieval Spanish. Wow. Right. Preparing you for this, for the world of Howard Sattler. It's well, that's right. It's obvious, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Sattler taught me research skills. <laughs> well, you know, somebody I know did her, P, her BA and PhD at Oxbridge in medieval French. Uh, and having come from a very working class background, emerged with her undergrad degree in medieval French, was immediately offered a job, £60,000 a year in the city, because, of course, they don't want to hire people with business degrees and accountancy degrees from bollocks you. They want to hire them. They want to hire people with, with proper degrees. This still goes on in Britain. Oh, absolutely. That's it's why it was so incredible. difficult to break into the media, no, you know. No, there are all these Oxbridge graduates yep. with, with well-connected parents, and uh, they're the ones that flow into the jobs. Uh, and the BBC is absolutely laden with them. In any event, so you have this very scholarly trajectory, then this populist trajectory, as it were, and then you go back into academia. So you've got the qualifications that very few journalism profs have, very few radio production profs have. And this qualification that is completely unrelated to what you profess. So what was it like re-entering academia? Well, it was very interesting because all the time I was a journalist, I mean, I just never even referred to my PhD. Right. It would have gotten in the way. Yeah, I mean, yes, that's right. The yeah. last thing we want as a journalist is an intellectual. Yeah. Um, but also it was in such a sort of weird area that, you know, 
and in Australia, nobody even knows where Spain is. Or no, that's what, right. Or when was medievalism? Yes. Even though medievalism, of course, was invented in the United States and is mostly housed there, mm. people in Australia don't house it the way that we No. The Midwest does. Yes, that's true. <laughs> um, the funny thing was, and I don't know, I mean, you were responsible for a lot of this. I mean, you were the one who first put Murdoch, the idea of coming to Murdoch as an academic sort of as an idea on the table, and it subsequently came to fruition, even though by then you'd left the state. But um, it did mean that I had the qualifications, as because I completed a PhD, um, of actually being able to come into a, an academic job um, with a, uh, from a practice-based background. Mm. So there were very few journalists. This was at the age, in the, in the sort of mid to late 90s, people were getting serious about journalism in Australia and they were actually looking for practitioners to come into the university environment in order to make the teaching of, well, to establish the teaching of journalism and to make it more industry relevant. So I was one of the sort of a new wave of academics, if you like, who mm -hmm. were taken straight mm -hmm. from industry. But it meant that I was able to get off, hit the ground running as a researcher and um, be able to, uh, you know, start writing textbooks about journalism, beginning to, starting to articulate some of the theory, which, mm. uh, the theory of practice. Mm. Um, mm. And that's really been what I've been engaged in as an academic, a bit of a crusade, really, um, in terms of trying to capture the theory of practice, to articulate it in such a way that it's seen to belong in an academic context, Journalism methodologies are simply uh, another form of social science methodologies. And if you can see journalism in that way, it's easier to translate what it does into academic terms that will get those academic recognition uh, in the academic environment, because this has been the big challenge. Um, and uh, it's also meant that uh, it's been possible to begin actually training up the academics who have been brought in from industry so that they can be academic researchers, which is an evolution out of journalism for them, and quite a hard transition. They're effectively in their second career, rather than starting out as academics from the start, mm -hmm. then anybody transitioning into a, a, a second career in midlife, it, it's going to have all sorts of challenges in terms of adjusting their skills to their new professional environment. And yet when you say that Basically, many journalism methods are those of social sciences. That's very interesting and provocative. Could you expand on that a little bit? Because that's suggesting that although there is this big transition, it's also partly a matter of vocabulary and redesignating what it is that you do. That's right. It's about, it's about not so much redesignating, but translating it into terms, familiar academic terms. It's not rocket science. <laughs> In fact, one of my PhD students, who, who now is uh, an associate professor and, and uh, head of journalism at Monash, you know, did uh, as part of her PhD thesis, which was deconstructing her work as a, as a producer of radio documentaries in order to show how it constituted research. And she actually did a diagram that um, a, a table that was able to sort of show the social science methodologies and how they translated into journalism methodologies. Now we're not talking about journalism that's to do with, you know, short articles here or three-minute news pieces there. It's actually journalism that is undertaken as a form of research, either because it actually embeds research practices 
into what is being done mm -hmm. or it uh, is done in the context of reflexive um, thought about, you know, the processes of journalism, what actually is being done, the impact of, on audiences, the way in which uh, different information is manipulated, the ethics of the manipulation of that information, those kinds of things. Mm. Very rich areas for research mm. in journalism. Where can people find some of your thoughts on this? Is there a place on the web or in published documentation? Well, I have, my publications are on the university website where I've got a profile. Of Murdoch University. Yeah, Murdoch University. Right. So that's where they will be. What would be your greatest hit? Well, the, or latest memory? The, uh, <laughs> the, the thing that's had the greatest impact, actually, is the thing that I don't get any recognition for as an academic. Um, Mia Lindgren, who's the Monash academic I was referring to. Before. Monash University is a university in Victoria, the state where Melbourne is, and it's in, in the mountain Melbourne suburb. Yes, well, Mia Lindgren... Uh, came to um, Murdoch a year after me. And we be, developed this amazing kind of work relationship. Um, and together we devised the sort of teaching that was, on, was here. And uh, when I first arrived at M Murdoch, I thought I had empty bookshelves and I thought, well, I've got to fill them now. Um, <laughs> no one's written a book on uh, radio production, I wonder maybe I should write a book. Mm. So I I had a list of publishers and I called Oxford mm. University Press and they said, yes, we'd like one. This doesn't happen. <laughs> the first person I called said, yes, please. So Mia and I did uh, a, a textbook on uh, Australian broadcast journalism, which is now in its third edition. It's used by 16 universities around Australia as a, the main textbook that they use for broadcast journalism, television and radio. But we never got any... Um, we're not able to count that as research. It's just one of the ways in which, you know, you can, uh, the thing that has greatest impact isn't necessarily something that you gain credit for as an academic as far as, you know, counting research outputs and those kinds of things. Australian broadcast production. The word broadcast seems to be dying. What's the impact of the web on radio? Do you think? I ask this because some people think it's the new golden age, and some people think it's the death. Uh, well, I've, I'm in the new golden age kind of brigade. In fact, uh, we're uh, me and I are again co-editing a, a, an, um, an edition of the Australian Journal uh, Journalism Review, which is on radio, and we've got international and local scholars talking about just what's been happening in radio because. Um, it really is, the, the digital technology has been a revelation for radio. It's allowed the capturing of sound. It's allowed the dissemination of sound, um, you know, far more broadly and far more flexibly than ever before. Mm -hmm. So some of the issues that have always obtained with radio being an evanescent medium and all that kind of stuff have gone out mm -hmm. the window. You can capture it. Mm -hmm. From a production point of view, you can capture it. You can visualize it. And uh, more and more people are interested in telling their stories. Um, just the way the web has encouraged people, you know, everybody to be up there as a publisher, it's also encouraged people to be up there as a broadcaster. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interest, especially amongst young people, in the power of the voice. And because it's so intimate and because it's so cheap and because you can do it just on your own without needing a cast of thousands as the visual media require, um, it actually is becoming something that 
is uh, of greater and greater interest, uh, both academic and as far as the population is concerned. And the work of people such as Ira Glass on NPR, mm -hmm. um, with the way that they have been bringing stories to the forefront. Um, they're so popular they become almost a cliché and there's a certain reaction against it, but nevertheless, this issue of compelling listening is something that has really uh, been inspiring um, younger uh, radio makers. I've been very interested in the way in which podcasts have ebbed and flowed in this, that the Sony Awards in Britain now exclude them. Well, don't exclude them, sorry. They no longer have their own category. And at one time, various hegemones of distribution of podcasts were saying they were over. But they're wildly popular. Yes, well, once again, you know, you've got these wonderful people who were able to just do their own thing, and you've got access to these marvelous minds, you know, who would never kind of come to you via the traditional, rather narrow broadcasting model. Mm -hmm. But with them having access to their own means of production, their own transmission, um, access to ways of garnering an audience, you can actually access them. It's wonderful, so enriching. Now, you must have had a little black book or a Rolodex or a Blackberry, with the names of probably thousands of people around Australia and the world at your contacts. When you started professing journalism, did you share the contents of your little black book of experts and people who knew about stories? Or did you tell people you've got to develop your own? What did you do with your little black book? Well, my little black book, and it just shows how old you know, how far back we're going here. My little black book, by the time I finished being an active producer, was three ring binders. <laughs> you know, it was before you had all this sort of electronic data. Mm. I wish I had had it. Yeah. You know, now I've got the equivalent of things like EndNote and stuff, which allow you to search by category any which way you like, you know. Mm. Um, keeping my own contact files. I loved, the, loved these ring binders around with me. They mm. were my brain <laughs> because mm. they really did... Embedded within them were just about every story thought, thought process I ever had. Mm. And any journalist is only ever as good as their contact file. Um, and it is up to journalists to basically find their own <laughs> contacts, <laughs> although people would call me um, and, uh, you know, ask me who might be a good person to get for this, that, and the other, and I would be happily point them in, in the direction of, of that. But uh, it did, it was, uh, I found it a very interesting, especially given the web, I found it a very interesting exercise in networking because, you know, by the time I finished as a, as a producer, there wasn't anybody. It was like six degrees of separation. If it took me more than three contacts globally to get a story, it was hard work. It was, you know, a more highly researched. Uh, I didn't have a lot of time to do that kind of research. So mm -hmm. it was really a question of where you dipped your toe in your network to see what contacts mm. that person had that would get you the person that you needed. And it usually took no more than three to get anybody anywhere in the world. Wow. And Gail, what about sound production now? Do you do any? Do you want to do any? Well, I do, I do miss it. Mm. I do miss active production. Um, the thing that I've been involved in over the past few years has been a website that we put together with... Uh, working with some um, medical researchers on asbestos. And it was basically uh, a site that brought together the information about asbestos. It's called the Australian Asbestos Network. 
but it was built on effectively the oral histories of people who had had experience of asbestos. Either they worked with it or they lived in Whittenham, which was a mining town here in Western Australia where most of the population has suffered the depredations of cancer and all sorts of things as a result of their exposure to asbestos dust. Um, family members with asbestos diseases, you know, all sorts of things like that. So we use these, these interviews, based the site on interviews, so people actually heard the voices, in some occasions saw the, 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 the um, faces of people, although we based it on audio. So you've got these audio accounts mm -hmm. of people talking about how they never knew about the risks, and these, this is, these are the risks that they're, they're, they and their families were exposed to. Mm -hmm. There are people who are, we have talking about how they're now dying of asbestos-related cancer. Um, we've got the historians, we've got the journalists, we've got the medics, all talking about the history of asbestos in Australia. So that involved me in a lot of uh, production work in terms of not just recording the interviews, but then thinking about how they would be presented in a web context so that they would be compelling listening and might encourage people to go from the stories to information about how to protect themselves from asbestos now. And I've visited that site. It's very, very impressive. Very oh, thank impressive. you. Um, what was the address again for people? It's uh, au. Yeah, very impressive. My last question is, what radio does Gail Phillips listen to now? Well, um, I listen to Radio National a lot. I listen to Classic FM a lot. I listen to um, Radio Suisse for their classic, Radio Suisse Classique. I listen to the World Service. Mm -hmm. I listen to uh, Radio 4. Mm -hmm. I listen to uh, NPR. Um, so, yes, quite a, a sort of... A know, lot through eclectic. the web. A, a lot, lot through, through the web. web. And some through the conventional some radio set. Some sort of digital radio. Right. I've got radio in every room in the house, including the smallest. So I have radio on wherever I am. Do you have different stations on in different rooms? Um, no, I tend to have, well, I can get different stations. You know, I can sort of select my listening depending on what I know to be on yeah. amongst my various options. Um, sort of anywhere in the world, really. Yeah. It's a very rich moment. And I think it's very exciting for you to have chosen this time to retire, to be able to get back into reading the languages and the literatures that you loved, and at the same time to be regularly updating your textbook with your colleague, and to have a radio in every single room. This. <laughs> Been lovely chatting. Thanks, Gail. Thanks.